I don't know what image the word idolatry brings to mind for you. Maybe it sounds like an old, old fashioned word that has no relevance today. Um, you picture statues or certain like ritual ceremonies, people kind of marching around some object made of gold or wood or marble or something and, and maybe literally bowing down to this thing, worshiping it. That is idolatry. But there's also a modern version of the same thing, um, even here, even in our country, even in our own lives. Something you and I are marching around every day, worshiping, giving ourselves to. It may not be made of gold or bronze or silver or whatever, but it's something that maybe controls our lives in all the same way. Um, It's worse than that. Our idols aren't on physical pedestals often. They're hidden in our hearts and they're difficult to detect and so much harder to give up. The reformer John Calvin wrote that man's heart is a perpetual idol factory. That's such a challenging image to think about our hearts, a perpetual idol factory, continually stamping out one after another idols that we then give our lives to. Martin Luther, another reformer, opens up the definition a little bit more when he says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to, Or confides in. That is really your God. Then more modern, Pastor Tim Keller, who wrote the book called Counterfeit Gods. Write that down in your resources. So much of what I've learned about this uh, subject comes from that book, Counterfeit Gods. He defines an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you only that which God himself can give you. That's an idol. One more. James K.A. Smith, who's also written a lot on this subject. And the name of his book is this quote. And here's the quote. You are what you love. That's kind of our working definitions of idols in our lives. It's an old term, but it's such a modern idea. What is it in your life and mind that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God himself? What is it that your heart clings to and confides in? What is it that you love more than God himself? You are what you love. That's your functional idol. Tonight, we're going to talk about idols. We're going to talk about lies that idols tell us. We're going to talk about the truth underneath those lies. And we're going to hopefully end with some kind of freedom from idols. What does it look like to live a life of freedom? So first, the lie about idols. So when our passage opens up, we find Moses is up on the mountaintop. He's talking to God. He had been gone for like 40 days, you know, talking to God. And God's giving him all these instructions on the mountain. We skipped a bunch of chapters since we last met. And in those chapters were more rules, more laws and instructions. Uh, Stuff about the tabernacle, um, stuff about worship and Sabbath and laws for the land in which they would soon find themselves. God's giving him all these laws. And the people are waiting. And they're waiting. Where's Moses? They keep waiting. And then they're done waiting. They're they're done with waiting for Moses. And so they go to their number two guy in the camp. That's Aaron. That's Moses' brother, his older brother. And they go to Aaron and they basically demand that he lead them in making some other type of God that they could worship in the meantime. Or a version of God. And we'll talk about both of those things. 
So Aaron gives in to their demand, and so they, they pulled all of their gold together, as you saw in the passage. They fashioned this idol in the form of a golden calf, and essentially Aaron led them in this worship service. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I would imagine as we read that, you realize how offensive that is, right? Like, that, that's very offensive language to God. Why? Because we know, as we've studied this story for three months now, God himself, Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Like, he's the one who did it over and over again. Rescue stories. One, two, three, four, five. All of them are God rescuing his people. And now they say to this calf, you've rescued us out of the land of Egypt. This is offensive language. There's some debate in the scholarly world as to if they are really making another God which would be breaking a commandment, of course, number one. Or if they are making a version of God in which they are saying, now this is Yahweh, which is breaking the second commandment. So they're breaking number one and number two either way, right? So they're fashioning a God in their own image because that's easier to do than listening to the way he reveals himself. We want to we work with a way that makes more sense to us. So here's the lie about idols. The lie about idols is that they deliver us. They don't deliver. They can't. Instead, they hold us hostage. And then we foolishly thank them for it. Here's what I mean. In 1973, August 23rd, 1973, a guy named Jean-Eric Olsen robbed a bank in Stockholm, the capital city of Sweden. And Olsen took... Four bank employees hostage, not just for like a few minutes, but for like six days. Takes these four bank employees, holds them hostage for six days. Negotiations uh, with the police went on and on, and eventually the standoff ended very safely for the four hostages, which is great. But something really interesting happened. Those who were taken captive began to defend Olson. They felt that he had been kind to them. That he had actually taken good care of them while he was keeping them hostage and keeping them prison in the bank walls. This is where the psychological term Stockholm Syndrome comes from, is this story. And one report said that the hostages experienced a powerful, primitive, positive feeling towards their captor. That they were in denial that this was a person who put them in that situation. In their mind, they think this is the person who is going to let them live. Could we be guilty of relating to our heart idols in a Stockholm Syndrome sort of way? Here's what I mean. That we turn to certain people or certain behaviors or things time and time again with this false belief that they were really kind to us last time. They're good to us, right? They've delivered me before. It'll deliver me again. And begin believing that that thing or that person is the thing that sustains your life when all along it's holding you hostage. Let me start by giving you four classic categorical idols so we can begin identifying some of these things in our own lives. I want you to see if one or more of these relates uh, for you or really stands out, and we'll work this out. These are the deep, kind of below-the-surface idols. 
They come out in so many different ways. Here, here they are. The idols of comfort. The idol of approval. The idol of control. Or the idol of power. Those are four main ones I want to focus on. Comfort, approval, control, and power. Any of those resonate? There's other idols that we can mention. There are other functional idols, image idols, dependence idols, independence idols, work idols, achievement idols, materialism, cultural idols, historical idols, family idols, safety idols. The list goes on and on. But I think these four are a really good starting place for us to kind of dig underneath the surface. So how do you know which idols might be buried underneath the surface of your heart? Okay, I picture idols to be like dandelions. We like dandelions, right? Kids love dandelions. Uh, They're pretty. Uh, Above the surface, they're flowers, right? Like they've got the really pretty yellow flower, and then they turn into that white thing that looks like a snowball. And like in in our old house in Huntsville, we had a yard that I cared about because, like, I paid for it. And we would have dandelions on occasion. Our girls would run out there, and they would be like, look at the pretty, no, and I would jump on them like like they were holding a bomb. Because dandelions, I don't know if you know this about dandelions, so they're pretty, right? You you pick them, they're yellow, and then they're white, and then you can just go, and they just blow. Do you know what you're blowing? You're blowing little pieces of time bomb into your yard. Like, this is like sin on a stick. It just goes in to the surface of the soils of your grass. And, it, and dandelions are weeds. They're poison. And so they go underneath the surface of your grass and they start to kill your actual grass. I hate dandelions. I don't, I don't know if you can tell. Even here it's... Okay. I got something to say about the dandelions here. But let me just say this. Here's the point. Idols. Really pretty above the surface. Look nice. Below the surface, killing everything. Here's where it's worse. In South Carolina, the dandelions, at least in my yard right now, that I don't really pay for, that I'm not doing much about, these dandelions, they're, they're ugly above the surface. They go up like I was going for two days this weekend. We had dandelions that grew from here to here. And they just go straight up and they're super ugly. Those are also idols. Sometimes idols are pretty. <laughs> you get the point. What are the dandelions of your heart? Something above the surface that looks so attractive and you're used to it and you're just kind of there over and over again. We briefly talked about idols a couple of weeks ago and I asked you three questions for you to begin to process what are some of the idols in your life. If you remember this, maybe you took some time to think about it. I'll name those again. When do I get anxious? When do I get angry? And when do I escape? Those are three good diagnostic questions to begin tracing this out in your life. Let me add one more that comes right out of this text. What do you turn to when you get tired of waiting? What do you turn to when you get tired of waiting? That's Israel's issue here, right? Their impatience turned to idolatry in a very literal way. Where does your impatience lead you? When you're waiting on God to come through on that thing and you get tired of waiting, where do you go? Are you tired of waiting for that internship or that full-time job offer 
or the invitation to the grad school, where do you turn when you're tired of waiting? Panic? Stress? Anxiety? Or kind of like overly invested, manipulate your way to the next thing? Work every connection you've got, go nuts about it until you've managed to control your future. Where do you go when you don't, you don't know what's on the other side? Or when you're tired of not being in a relationship, when you're tired of being single, where do you go? Where does it lead you? It may lead you to sulking in your loneliness, kind of constant jabs at your friends who are in relationships. It may lead you to excusing some other unhealthy behaviors. It may lead you to not waiting at all and jumping into whatever relationships available. Because that's the one that's there, might as well work. And you know it's unhealthy. Like, where do you go when you're tired of waiting? Do you find that God's just taken too long for you? You need to be very careful to pay attention to the thing that you do next when you question God. Because that will become your functional savior. And you begin to believe the lies. You believe the lie that porn will deliver you. Or that some relationship will actually make you really happy. Or that your connections will deliver you. Or your resume or your plans will deliver you. Um, I was wrestling through this this week. And I thought of two exact examples where I turn to when I feel like life is out of control. When I want, when I want to feel more safe or secure. Like if I feel like I want to be in more control but life feels out of control. I turn to financial security to help me. And there's a couple like literal ways that I do this. And I can see where this becomes like a functional savior for me. Uh, one on a ministry side of things. So we raise money for RUF and we have access to check what's coming in on a live basis, which is dangerous. And so if I feel like some things are out of control, let me check that account to see if something's coming in. It's like, you know, it's like a drug. Let me just make sure another check is clear. Okay, we're okay after all. See what I, that's a way for me to feel secure it doesn't make me feel secure because what if nothing's coming in? It doesn't work. Or my own personal, you know, bank stuff or our own financial security. I'll compare where we are right now to where we were two months ago and see if we've saved anything or if we've lost something in the process. Um, I'm really stupidly chasing control and it never delivers. Or if I feel like I'm lacking in my idol of approval, which is a huge idol for me. And it comes out in so many different ways, y'all. When you start to identify the ways that this, these idols come out. When I feel like I'm lacking in my idol of approval, I'll do something like check social media, right? To see if there's another like or a comment. Um, to see if there's new followers or something. I'll check RUF's Instagram to see if we have any more likes. Make me feel significant. Or I'll go fishing for approval. And I'll ask those questions that are just kind of dangling out there to to see if anybody bites to make me feel like I matter. Where do you go? Our idols cannot and they will not deliver us. That's the lie about idols. Only God can deliver. But we need to see what's on the other side of that lie. Here's the truth. The truth about idols is not only do they not deliver us, but they actually destroy us. So when God realizes that Israel has broken the first and second commandments, the text tells us that the Lord told Moses, I've seen the people and behold, they are stiff necked people 
And now let my wrath burn against them. Those are not what you call comforting words in Scripture. Right? This is a hard part of the text for us. This is not good news for God's people. And, and it's hard to work, kind of wrestle through this. Because the idols that pretended to give life, they brought us out of Egypt. Remember this claim. Now they are bringing death. The idols that they were trusting to bring them life are now condemning them. This is just an Old Testament way to say, for the wages of sin is death. And we ask, is God unloving when he treats people like this? People within his camp, when he treats them like this for their idolatry, isn't he gracious and forgiving? Why does he destroy them? And he does, by the way, like this text doesn't take as much of a good turn as you want it to in the end. The reality is, as we see all throughout Scripture, God demands perfect obedience. In fact, his character requires it. God cannot remain in a relationship with man if man remains in relationship with sin. It's problematic for all of us. And where our lives show that we aren't holy, we grow distant from him. This is the essential problem for us as sinners. None of us remains in the presence of God due to our own sin. For the wages of sin is death. The payoff of idols is destruction. This is as true today as it was then. Idols do not provide. Idols destroy us. They do not come through on their promise of life. And this is true in a like literal idols destroy our lives and our relationships on a regular basis. And they lead to eternal Destruction as well. It's true on both levels. Jesus himself says that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Our idols are tools in the hands of the evil one that he uses to wreck our lives and to cause us to causes us to kind of fix our eyes on ourselves to fix the problem, which only compounds the problem. And we create other idols. I can immediately think of two great illustrations of this reality in two modern musicals. If you like musicals, you'll like this. If you don't, that's fine. Both of which I've already referenced this semester, so let me do it again. Aaron Burr's main problem in Hamilton is his idol of power. Aaron Burr has a huge idol of power. And Really, the same could be said for P.T. Barnum's character in The Greatest Showman. I want to compare these two characters. Each musical also has a song that accompanies this point that I will now sing for you. (laughs) No, in Hamilton, you see, if you're familiar with the story of the soundtrack, you see what the idols of power do to control Burr. You see it in the room where it happens, where he's positioning for this, this seat of power, literally, in the government. And it just kills him that he can't get into the room where the real decisions are made. And it's beginning to, like, destroy his insides. And Lin-Manuel Miranda shows this, even as the song progresses. I just caught this this week as I was thinking about it and re-listened to it. He goes from saying, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where it happens. He says that at the beginning. And then at the end, when he's kind of going nuts and he's screaming, he screams, I've got to be in the room where it happens. I've got to be. I've got to be. And, And it's this maddening unraveling going on inside of him. That's what the idol of power does. And it's... 
if you follow history, I mean, this is true to the story. He became vice president. You know, he, his idol led him to some good places. But what did he trade in along the way? What his idols ended up costing him in the end. And, and the greatest showman paints the same kind of idolatrous picture. You could argue that it's idol of approval or power. But it's based on the somewhat true story of P.T. Barnum. And Hugh Jackman's character begins to chase his dream. I'm not going to ruin anything because I know it just came out on DVD this weekend. Go watch it like today. Um, we should all leave right now and go watch it. It's so good. At first, he begins to chase his dream of being the greatest showman on earth to his family's approval. And they, they love him for it. But as the story progresses, he just has to have more and more and more and more. And he begins to lose everything along the way. But the song that captures this point in the middle of the movie is such a crucial point is the song Never Enough. And it's a, such a beautiful song with very piercing lyrics that are sung by this singer in the movie, Jenny Lynn. Let me just read two lyrics because this is, this is idolatry. Listen to these words. All the shine of a thousand spotlights... All the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. They'll never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. It will never be enough for me. You hear it? These are honest cultural illustrations that our idols can never come through on the promises that they make. You will never have enough comfort If comfort is the thing that you're chasing. You will never have enough approval if you're constantly begging for everyone's approval. You will never have enough control if control is the thing you want most. You will never have enough power if power is the thing that drives your life. You will never have enough. Instead of coming through on these promises, our idols lead to nothing but destruction in this life and in the next one. Unless God intervenes. So what hope is there for perpetual idol factories like us? Where might we find freedom from idols? I think first we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to see that our idols are chiefly built as unsatisfactory substitutes for the one true God. Therefore, all of our idolatry issues are ultimately God issues. And they are as offensive to him as bringing up this golden calf. And they separate us from him. If we don't see them and begin repenting of them, then they will destroy our lives. That's the first step, is an honest assessment of the real problem. And I think if you walk away tonight, and I I literally mean this, if you walk away with maybe one of those four categories and you're like, I think this may be true of me. Begin to explore that prayerfully and with people. I would love to talk to you about it and begin working through that idol in your life. So you've got to see it for what it is and see that it destroys your relationship with God. Because it's an idol. It's a substitute. So what are, what's yours? Out of what we've listed, which one do you kind of find yourself bowing down to most in your life? Comfort, approval, control, or power? Confess it before God and begin to learn perhaps what you are trying to get from that idol that only God himself can provide. Maybe you're trying to find meaning apart from God. Trying to find purpose apart from God. You're trying to find pleasure apart from God. Achievement apart from God. Love apart from God. Then instead of replacing God with an idol, that's breaking first two commandments. Instead of doing that, replace the idol with God. 
which is, you know, how we were designed in the beginning. It's like what the old Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers said when, when he said the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. I think it's one of the best quotes around. I'm going to say it again. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is with the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, we don't need to love less. We need to find deeper love. We don't need to seek comfort less. We need to find real comfort. We don't need to seek approval less. We need to find approval from the only one whose approval matters. We actually need deeper affections. So where do we find those affections? Of course, look no further than to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing that in this passage, Moses steps in. I don't know if you call this at the end. He steps in and he offers his life for Israel's. He stands as a substitute as if to say, don't destroy them because of their sins. Destroy me, God. But God doesn't take him up on his offer. It wasn't a substitute deep enough. It's just a man. And God's wrath came against God's people for their sins. Justice had to be satisfied that day because the sin was just too great. But there's a greater Moses for us. A better mediator who stands in the gap between sinners and God. Who actually can offer himself as an eternal substitute. Because his blood is of eternal worth. There's a great New Testament term that's given of what Jesus did on the cross for idolaters like me and you. And it's this idea of propitiation. It's a fancy little word you come across a few times in the New Testament. It basically means atoning sacrifice. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, he goes to say to his eternal father, don't destroy them because of their sins. Destroy me. And this time God listens. Jesus dies the death that all of our idol worship brings us to. And he takes it on himself when he takes on the cross. So here's the key. Do you want to know how loved you are? Do you want to know what kind of approval you have from God himself? Do you want to understand true comfort and even power? Look no further than to the cross of Christ. You have the stamp of eternal approval on your life if you are in Christ because you are in His Son who is perfect. You are fully approved in the sight of God because of Christ. Whatever comforts you're chasing, whatever the thing is that you're turning to over and over again and say, make me feel good, you can find real comfort. In the arms of a Savior who welcomes you. Control, you're not going to find it in this life. But you can find a God who loves you, who is in control. Who can bring you real comfort when you feel out of control. We don't know what's next. In power, the power that you know, raised Jesus from the dead now resides in you. The power of the Holy Spirit is promised to you. That now works 
to give you power to fight against those idols that take life from you. Like, that's good news. That is good news for idolaters like us. And even now for sinners like us, we have an advocate in heaven, a lasting mediator. He doesn't just die. He comes back from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of God the Father where he is an eternal mediator for us. As Paul put it in 1 Timothy 2, he says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I'll end with a story of how one Christian has found real freedom from her idols. Are you familiar with Letitia Wright? Letitia's an actress, really famous actress right now, and currently starring in The Black Panther, which is another incredible movie. Sounds like I watch a lot of movies. I don't. I just watch good movies. And that was a great movie. Uh, Letitia plays the little sister character of the king. She's super funny. I saw an interview with Letitia recently where she was talking about her faith. This is really interesting. She uh, became a Christian just a couple of years ago. And she was doing an interview with a Christian station about this. And she talked about her idolatry of acting and how it had taken over her life. She just needed the next role. She just needed the next sense of approval for everyone to tell her that she's great. And she became a Christian actually through a Bible study for London actresses. That's ministry right there. Anyone called to London? Okay. A Bible study for London. Just think about Bible studies that are happening on this campus, what God may be doing. But she became a Christian, a London Bible study for actresses. And as a result of her kind of newfound faith in Christ, she gave up acting. She left it three years ago. Completely left it. She said, I'm done. Because it had become so much of an idol. And she actually, she called it that. She said, it had become too much of an idol in my life. I needed to leave it. She gave up roles. She gave up a role to act with Nicole Kidman and Elle Fanning in the big movie. I mean, she was legit in saying, I'm done. She said she felt God saying, give it up because I can give you so much more. And so she gave it up for a time. But as she began to grow in her understanding of how she was loved and accepted by God in Christ, she returned to acting with a totally different affection, a totally different purpose. She said in this interview, and this was a quote, she said, I felt secure and that I didn't need validation from anyone else. My happiness wasn't dependent on that anymore. It was dependent on my relationship with God. That is an incredible picture of what it looks like to wrestle with your idols, even at a cost. And to see what God may do on the other side, a freedom that can only come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you want freedom? From your idols. Confess what God's showing you even tonight. Deal with him in prayer. Be honest about some of these idols in your life. And I would encourage you to even be honest with this question. What might God be calling you to give up? To say, I'm done with it. What might God be saying to you? Give it up. Because I can give you so much more. Of course, we don't do this in our own power. We need help help from the spirit we need help from our friends but maybe God's calling you to give something up consider what you might be trying to derive from your idols that only God can give you and begin replacing them with a deeper affection for the gospel to give you real freedom real meaning real purpose real comfort in a way that only God himself can do 
And I'll just end with this quote. As Jesus said, the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he goes on to say in that very verse, but I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's the promise of the gospel for you. Would you pray with me?